sometimes it's challenging to figure out what to preach on Christmas, and uh, it's not because it's the same thing over and over and over again, the same passage. Actually, for me, every time I come to Christmas, there's just so many options throughout Scripture, what passages to go to to preach uh, Christmas morning, the week before Christmas. Um, uh, So today, I really want to focus not on the story of Christmas, but the significance of it, the significance of Christmas. At this point in the Christmas season, and if you've come to uh, the new uh, Christmas Eve service last night, uh, you have heard the Christmas story, and you probably have heard it a number of times. But I wonder how many people in the world actually know or actually believe, know the significance of Christmas. In other words, why is the story, this baby in a manger, so significant and so important? This is the question I want to answer today, and I don't think there's any place better in Scripture to answer this question that gets to the meaning of Christmas, the heart of Christmas, better than John 1, 1 through 14. It's only 14 verses, but it's so profound. In fact, we could do sermons and sermons and sermons, but I'm going to do a quick and short sermon this morning. Um, That's my goal, at least, in these 14 verses. Verses, and I really want these 14 verses just to preach themselves this morning. So I have three points, very simple. The word, man's response, God's glory. The word, man's response, and God's glory. So let's start with the word. John 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1, 1, those, those few words that I just read, John 1, 1 is one of the most profound, deep, remarkable sentences ever written by man, period. Of course, this was inspired by God. God's the ultimate author, which is obvious because how could there be so much meaning in so few words? This sentence is, is really just brilliant. Let me just read to you from one of my favorite theologians, what he said about John 1.1. He says this, One one could search the great ideas of mankind and probe the uh, pondering of the philosophers and the, the poetry of the artists and find no higher idea, no more concise yet expressive statement about God than the one John makes at the beginning of his gospel. The first statement of John's gospel is a bomb of meaning that goes off without warning, erupting suddenly and the sublime and inexpressible, the infinite and unsearchable, the personal and ineffable uh, reality of God comes exploding on the consciousness of John's audiences in the words of John 1, 1. Again, so much meaning found in so few words. In the beginning was the word. Now in Greek, I know most of us know this, in Greek that that word translated word is Logos, right? which is a very important word, especially in the Greek culture. The Greeks believed that the Logos was the source of all wisdom. It was this philosophical idea, an impersonal abstract principle right, that orders the universe. Again, a very important word for the Greek culture. Therefore, many think, many commentators believe that John had this philosophical concept in mind when writing John chapter 1, verse 1, but I don't think that was John's main point. Look how he starts, verse 1. He says this, in the beginning. 
in the beginning. We know that those three words have so much meaning. In fact, what do you think of when you hear those three words? If I came up here and just started and said those three words, in the beginning, where would your mind go automatically? Genesis 1-1, and that would be true for the Jews in John's day too. Genesis 1-1 starts like this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is clearly alluding to Genesis 1-1, which says, in the beginning, what? God, the next word. Well, look what John says in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. That's a profound statement. In fact, that's a shocking statement. John starts his gospel in a, a shocking way. I just think about this. Could you imagine a Jew reading John's gospel for the very first time and gets to the part where it says the very first three words in the beginning and he doesn't see God. He says he sees the word. It would have been shocking. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word was with God, meaning meaning with God, but that also means that that distinct from God be with someone is to be distinct from that person, yet at the same time, the word was God. Again, a simple statement, very few words. I mean, if you think about that, so simple, really a five-year-old could understand what it's saying, yet so deep, no human reason can comprehend it. God is three, yet one. One essence, one God, three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, the word, the logos, is the son of God, right? Or, better yet, God the son. And he was with God, and the word was God. Verse 2, he, this is Jesus, again, God the son, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now remember, John is pointing us back to the book of Genesis, and, and really we're going to see the book of Genesis and Exodus, one of the reasons I want to go through this passage this morning. So let me ask you a question. When you have the Genesis in your, your mind in the beginning in creation, how did God create everything? By speaking, by using words or the word. In fact, listen to Psalm 33, 6. It says this, by the word, right? by the word, in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the Jews use, it was, it was translated by the logos, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Again, John has the Old Testament in mind, and I believe he, it's not Greek philosophy that he's thinking about when he uses the word logos. I mean, he could be thinking that, but he's pointing us back to Genesis and Exodus in the very beginning of his gospel. Right? From the beginning, the word created the heavens and the earth. And listen how John describes the word. Look at verse 4. In him, right, this is the word, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Again, Genesis, think of creation. Right? God spoke what? Light into existence. God spoke life into existence 
right? God is the source of both light and life in the book of Genesis. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, this is an allusion to creation. Let me just read Genesis 1-1 and see if you pick it up. See if you can see the connection. It says this in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness. Darkness was over the face of the deep. In other words, darkness was over the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3 says this. And God said, in other words, he used his word. God said, let there be light. And there was light. In other words, light came into the darkness of the world. Again, look at John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness. That's Genesis. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, the Greek word that's translated overcome there, it it can be translated comprehend. In fact, it's hard to tell which which translation it should be, which connotation, what what John was getting at. The ESV translates it, the darkness has not overcome it, right? It's not overcome the light. The NASB translates it this way, the darkness did not comprehend the light, did not comprehend it. Now, both of these really are legitimate uses of the Greek word, meaning John is either saying the darkness will not prevail over the light, which the context here, the light is Jesus, right? Or the darkness can't understand or comprehend the light, right? Both of these are supported by Scripture. We see, right, both ways uh, throughout Scripture that the darkness will not overcome it, will not prevail. In fact, the darkness killed Jesus, and what happened on the third day? He was raised from the dead. On top of that, the darkness of this world can't understand the light, cannot comprehend it. Either way, Jesus came into the world, and he was different. He was different. So different, in fact, that Scripture teaches both, the world both hated him and didn't understand him, didn't see who he was didn't understand his value. Again, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the light. This is the word. This is the logos. This is Jesus. He was with God. He was God. He was the center of of everything. He was the creator of everything, the the world, the universe, the heavens. He is the source of life. He is the light. The light that shines into the darkness of this fallen world. And the darkness cannot comprehend it and the darkness cannot overcome it. This is the word. Therefore, to say the least, let me just say this, to say the least, John starts off his gospel with a very, very, very high view of who Jesus is. (laughs) Anything less than Jesus being 100% divine is an ignorant, 
and incorrect interpretation of John 1, 1 through 5. It's just so clear. That's the word. Which brings us to our second point this morning. Man's response. Man's response. How did man respond to the word, to Jesus, to the light, to this God? Well, look at verse 6. There is a man sent from God. Now, there's meant to be a contrast here. This is a second, a different paragraph, a different idea. A contrast here. Jesus was with God. Jesus was, was God. He was with God from the beginning. Verse 6, there was a man. In other words, just a man. And this man was sent by God. Again, verse 6, there was a man sent by, from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist, not the author of the Gospel of John, different Johns. This was John the Baptist. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that's Jesus, that all might, might believe in, through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, last week at our Advent service, our last Advent service before Christmas Eve service, uh, Ross preached a sermon and he talked about the 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament, that, that God didn't speak for 400 years. And in Ross's sermon, right in the middle of it, he purposely created an awkward silence. If you weren't here, it was awkward. <laughs> he just stood there in silence for, it felt like over a minute. It felt like much longer than a minute, but I don't even think it was a minute. I have to ask Ross how long it was. And you know what? It was, it was truly uncomfortable. In fact, there is a relief, even a little bit of a joy, when Ross started speaking again after the silence. But think about the 400 years of silence. God not speaking to his people for 400 years. Think about the, the silence and the joy of the people when God broke the silence. In fact, we see in the Gospels, John, the, uh, John, the, or, uh, um, John the Baptist was very popular in Israel. The silence was broken by John, a man sent by God to speak for God, to bear witness about the light. John was a prophet, a man who Jesus said was the greatest among those born of women. That's an amazing statement. Yet he wasn't greater than Jesus. In fact, he had one main job. This person that was the greatest to be born of women, the, this person had one main job, and that was to point people to the light, to Jesus. Again, verse 8, John was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 10, he, this is Jesus, the light, the logos, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Once again, we just come across a, a verse that just has so much meaning. In fact, there should be a, a whole three-part series on this one verse, sermons. I mean, it's even shocking, this one verse. Verse 10 says this, he was in the world. Let me just stop there, that's remarkable. 
That's remarkable. That's, in fact, that's Christmas. It's what we're celebrating today. It's what billions of people are celebrating right now, today. I mean, just think about this. The the whole world sets its calendars to this one truth. It's 2023 because 2023 years ago, about, he was in the world. It's a remarkable statement, but it's only remarkable because of the second statement in verse 10, which is this. And the world was made through him. The world was made through him. This man, this baby in a manger that we celebrate, is the creator of the world. Just think about that. Colossians 1.16 says this, For by him, that's Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, meaning the very earth he created, the very wood that was made for the, the manger, he spoke all that into existence. This baby. Heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and not just through him, for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I think about that statement often because I wonder when he was on the cross, was he somehow holding the particles of the wood together? Hebrews 1, 3 says this, he is the radiance of the glory of God. That's the same glory that we saw on Mount Sinai. That glory, that glory that's terrifying he is the radiance of the glory of god the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power if this person who made the universe who holds everything together who is the exact imprint of yahweh he was in the world two amazing statements when you put them together He was in the world, the one that created everything. The most shocking statement, I believe, in verse 10, the very end, which says this, the world did not know him. In other words, he came to his own creation, and his creation did not recognize him, did not know him. You know, as I was studying this and kind of meditating on this passage this week, it, it just reminded me of this verse of Romans 1.18. Let me just read it. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, man has no excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they knew God. Some talked with him. They did not honor him as God or give 
thanks to him. Thanks for what? How about life? Creation. Breath. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him or honor him or give thanks to him. Instead, the world rejected And if verse 10 is shocking, verse 11 is even more shocking because it says this. He came to his own. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Even the Israelites, God's chosen nation, which was given the Old Testament, God's word, the whole Old Testament, which we have seen clearly pointing Israel forward to Jesus. Yet his own people did not receive him. one of the the great butts of scripture (laughs) but to all who did receive him who believed in his name who gave the right to become children of god who were born in other words those who believed were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of In other words, salvation comes from God alone. Nor, not of blood, in other words, not of heritage, not because you're a Jew, not because you grew up in the church, not because your parents are believers, nor of the will of the flesh, not because you desired it or someone desired it, nor of the will of man, not because someone even chose it. Again, these are those who believe. Verse 13, we're born not of blood, not nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation comes from God. Even faith, even faith is a gift from God. The product of regeneration, of new birth. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift, the gift of God. Meaning, all the glory, All the glory of our salvation goes to God. Brings us to our last point this morning. We have the word, man's response, and finally, God's glory. God's glory. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, This is just another amazing verse that you can just write books on. (laughs) In fact, I I started going through this 14 verses, wanted to do a little shorter of a sermon, and I'm like, how am I going to do that? Another amazing verse, like verse 1, verse 10, just packed full of meaning and deep theology in such few words. In fact, this one verse sums up my last two sermons that I preached in Exodus. It's one of the reasons I wanted to, to come to this portion of Scripture this morning to tie it into Exodus. Let me just show you what I mean. It it starts off by saying this, the word, the word, which is Jesus, the light, the word became flesh. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I did a sermon on the angel of the Lord. If you were here, if you weren't here, you should listen to that sermon. It brings context to this. A character in the Old Testament that I talked about spans the entire Old Testament. You see him pop up from Genesis to Malachi, that means every, he's not in every book, but you see him throughout the whole Old Testament. 
a character that interacts with some of the most important figures in the Old Testament, like Abraham, Moses, David, Daniel. A character in the Old Testament that's given the name of God, that often is just called God, that speaks with the authority of God, is worshipped like God. A character that God commanded Israel to obey, to listen to. In fact, listen to Exodus 23, verse 21. This is the passage I went over. It says this, Pay careful attention to him. That's the angel of the Lord. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Two weeks ago, I made a claim that that this character, this angel of the Lord, is the pre-incarnate Jesus. In, In other words, Jesus, before he took on flesh. Jesus before Christmas. Jesus in the Old Testament. Therefore, the word talked about in John 1, the word is that same pre-incarnate Jesus, God the Son. Well, with that in mind, listen to verse 14. And the word became flesh. In other words, he took on human form. The pre-incarnate Jesus became incarnate. And dwelt among us. Now remember, John has the Old Testament in mind. And that's what's important about this first chapter. In fact, the whole book of John, he has the Old Testament in mind. It's amazing all the Old Testament allusions and references that we see in the Gospel of John. But he has the Old Testament in mind. And the Greek word that's translated dwelt is an important important word. It says, and dwelt among us. This word means something like set up residence with us. Set up a tent in the middle of, or better, tabernacle among us. The Greek word means something like tabernacle, which clearly points back to Exodus, to the tabernacle. The portion of Exodus we're at, we're going to be talking about the tabernacle for for weeks after, uh, after Christmas and the New Year's. Last week I talked about the tabernacle. It's where... God's glory will dwell on earth. It will dwell on earth with men. In fact, in the middle of God's people, the tabernacle, Israel will encamp around the tabernacle. And God will will live with man on earth, in the middle of man, in a tent. Last week we learned the tabernacle is extremely important and it's connected to Mount Sinai. In fact, it's a mini Mount Sinai. All the time that we've been spending talking about Mount Sinai, we saw this connection last week where the tabernacle was modeled after Mount Sinai and the glory of God that was at the top of Mount Sinai, the presence of God that was at the top of Mount Sinai will enter into the tabernacle and will move around with the people of God. It's an amazing concept. It's it's an amazing thing that we see in the, the Old Testament. God's presence, God's glory will dwell with man once again. In fact, let me just read to you the very end of Exodus 24. Exodus 24, verse 17, this is the sermon we had last last week. It says this, Now the appearance of the glory of God was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and, and went up on the mountain, and Moses on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if you would, if you have your scriptures, turn to Matthew 17. This won't be on the screen, so use your 
physical copy of the word or digital, one of the two. Matthew 17, verse 1. says this, verse 1, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them what? Up. Up a high mountain by themselves. What's that sound like? Sounds like Mount Sinai. Moses went up, right, a high mountain. Verse 2, and he, this is Jesus, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light on the top of the mountain. I mean, think about this. Just like Moses ascended up the mountain to the presence of God, to his glory, to to see his glory and speak to him face to face, Peter, James, and John just ascended a mountain to to the very top and are in the full presence of the glory of Jesus. (laughs) His face shone like the sun, meaning you couldn't even look at him. Remember the elders described what was underneath God, probably because their faces were on the ground. That's all they could see. Verse 3. Behold, there uh, there appeared with them who? Moses. Elijah talking with him, talking with Jesus, just like Moses used to ascend up the mountain, Mount Sinai, and talk with God. We're going to see it says face to face. Moses is doing the same thing here, top of the whatever mountain this is. Verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Look, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking, just like Peter, when behold, I want you to hear this. I don't know how this is possible. A bright cloud overshadowed them. How do you overshadow the sun? Because that's what Jesus' face was shining like. Somehow a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son who I am well pleased. What? Listen to him. What does that sound like? Exodus 23, verse 21. This is what God said from the cloud at Mount Sinai to the people of Israel. He said this, pay careful attention to him, the angel, and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. In other words, this man that was with Peter, James, and John, whose face shone like the sun, the glory of God was was there at the top of the mountain because Jesus was there. The terrifying, glorious, dangerous, dangerous God that, that we saw in Exodus descend on Mount Sinai as an all-consuming fire, a cloud, an earthquake, a thunder, lightning storm, whose presence was indescribable by the elders. This God became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 is just an incredible 
incredible verse. And it's the significance of Christmas. God himself came and dwelt among us. Walked and talked with man. Charles Wesley really captured this in an amazing thought in his famous hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I'll just read you a few lines. It says this, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, tabernacle with, to live in the midst of, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Turn back to John 1.14. Again, verse 14. Just the beginning part. These few words. Think about that baby. I just think about Mary picking him up. <laughs> the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelling with man. Right, this is the tabernacle. This is Mount Sinai. Where God came down to man and dwelt with Israelites in the wilderness and then dwelt with them in the tabernacle. But, but I think more than any of this, as Daniel prayed this morning and we didn't even talk, this was the Garden of Eden. Before the fall, God dwelt with man in the garden. He walked with Adam in the cool of the day and talked with Adam. Now in the Gospels, once again, God dwelt with man on earth, walked with him and talked with him. Again, this is the significance of Christmas. It's the reversal of the curse started here tabernacle, the problem with the tabernacle, as we're going to see, is there's all these, these boundaries that people couldn't cross. They couldn't get to the presence of God. O only one man once a year, we talked about, could actually get to the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. Jesus, God himself, walked and talked with man. We know the story. Jesus was born in a manger, animals surrounding him, to a poor but faithful set of parents. Angels and shepherds came to worship him. A star was seen by wise men from the east and sent them westward. This is the Christmas story, but listen, the only reason it's significant, the only reason it's something worth celebrating today is because of who was in that manger. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel.
we thank you. We thank you for your son, as I said last night, your son who lived with us, Lord, the, who, who became a man who died on the cross for our sins, Lord, who was raised on the third day so that anyone who puts their faith in him, Lord, shall be saved. I pray if there's someone in here that doesn't have a relationship with you, that they, they see this morning the significance of Chris, er, Christmas, Lord, that, that God himself, the, the second member of the Trinity, Lord, came down in a manger, took on flesh, dwelt with us, lived as a man, and died on the cross for their sins. Lord Jesus himself said that he is the, the way, the truth, and the life. As John says, he is the life. And the only way to life, Lord, is through faith in him, God. I pray for anyone that's listening right now, Lord, that hasn't put their faith in him, that they would this morning. I pray for all of us that have, Lord, that we would celebrate, Lord, as we sing and open gifts and, and enjoy family, that we would celebrate the true significance of Christmas, Lord, that God himself would, would dwell with man, Lord. Pave the way to a relationship with him to, to bring us back to the garden, Lord. God, I pray we celebrate and glorify you this morning in your son's name.